Today on Against the Grain. They're among the biggest companies in the world. Google, Apple, Microsoft, Facebook, and Amazon have an outsized impact on the global economy and on our daily lives. Rob Larson examines the companies that have become synonymous with the glories and ills of contemporary capitalism. He makes the case for online socialism. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Big tech is shrouded in mythology, and its owners are happy to keep it that way. Five companies dominate parts of the economy to an extent reminiscent of the late 19th century robber barons. They harvest our data, surveil us, and make enormous profits in the process. In his latest work, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, published by Haymarket, Rob Larson explores how these companies have derived monopoly power through the network effect, frequently profiting from innovations made in the public sector while giving credit to supposed entrepreneurial geniuses like Steve Jobs. Larson is professor of economics at Tacoma Community College. Rob, what's the importance, if you can spell it out for us, of the top five tech companies for contemporary capitalism? Uh, Capitalism as a system has been around for a few centuries now. Uh, And at any particular time, there's always a a number of firms that are a sector of the economy that's ascendant. And often these firms are the ones, you know, these companies within capitalism uh, are the ones that are growing fastest or that have the most cash or are seen to be ascendant in some way. And of course, uh, for the last uh, good uh, decade or two, it's been the big tech platforms that have been seen that way. Uh, and so in Bit Tyrants, I uh, just take a chapter each to look at each of those big five uh, platform giants, uh, of course, being Microsoft, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, and Google, uh, because those firms, uh, besides being ascendant and being seen as being able to do no wrong until about five years ago when things took a turn, <laughs> uh, up until that point, these firms were dominant and seen as these wonderful things and showing us how great the marketplace is and innovation, bringing us all these fun new technologies and free services. So wonderful. But I think the best way to see uh, the importance of these firms is just to recognize that, as I said, at any time, uh, you always have some firms that are the very biggest or the most prominent in the marketplace at that time for several years uh, up until about uh, six months ago, the five biggest firms were all these big tech platforms, those top five. Facebook lately has struggled with its numerous scandals and losing market share to TikTok, so I think it's down to sixth and uh, Berkshire Hathaway's in that spot, something like that. But these, it's very rare just for all of the five biggest companies in the US and indeed globally, it's very rare for them to all be from one sector. When I was a young person in the 1990s, uh, back then your five biggest firms would be, you know, Walmart, Microsoft, Exxon, Chase Bank, you know, uh, Berkshire Hathaway. Now usually it's just these top tech platforms. Very unusual, and there's very significant economic reasons why they've become so dominant. But um, besides all those things, I also I would just say finally that I, th- I think we all know we're very, very, very reliant uh, on these platforms. You know, uh, you know, with Google and Apple's phones and everything, we use these things to, you know, meet people to date, to find jobs, to find out what's happening in the world. Uh, I think we all know the level of our reliance on these firms is pretty severe too. So that's uh, another reason. (laughs) And you were talking about their fate in recent years. And so I wanted to ask you, how have these tech companies fared during the pandemic? It is kind of a mixed bag. The main headlines all through the pandemic, you know, starting about uh, two years ago, uh, have been, wow, these, these tech platforms, they were growing fast. They were already the dominant firms. Uh, but now with the pandemic, as we know, so many of us, at least the most, the more privileged white collar people among us who are able to keep our jobs by working from our apartments, uh, as opposed to our blue collar workers who are either out of work or de- deemed essential and forced to keep working. Uh, for many of us, you know, we've been shut indoors. And so that does play to the business models 
of these uh, big tech platform firms, you know, uh, more time spent at home means more time for scrolling Facebook, more time watching YouTube. Uh, working remotely means using especially Microsoft and some of the other startups, uh, you know, online collaboration software. So the, these uh, big five tech platforms, which were booming before, just exploded outward during COVID as people were bored. And of course, uh, not wanting to shop, which certainly played into uh, Amazon's giant global retailing uh, model as well. But of course, lately, uh, things are taking a bit of a turn. Step-by-step, uh, step, different chunks of the U.S. populace have... Uh you know, uh, have uh, soured on the uh, big platforms. You know, Republicans, all they can do is tell us how great the marketplace is and it brings us innovation until some of these firms' workers get so sick of uh, the corporate policy that they demand something that conservatives don't like, such as bouncing Trump from Twitter after uh, he spent years and years uh, amplifying COVID misinformation and you know, every other kind of horrifying lie. Uh, YouTube and Facebook not surfacing uh, right-wing content enough, even though by all accounts that we have, right-wing content already kind of dominates these platforms for all the same reasons it historically dominated mass media and the propaganda model of Her Herman and Chomsky, which we can also return back to. There's a lot of connections there. Uh, but it's interesting to see that happen. And of course, liberals are very mad at Facebook, especially now because they blame Facebook for electing Donald Trump, which is not a very rich uh, picture of what happened there. But the point is, there's enough now political antagonism that only the inability of Congress to pass the laws is saving the firms at this point. The executive branch is putting a few more uh, you know, limitations on them. There are a lot of antitrust investigations right now running uh, against the firms, some from the Justice Department, but primarily by the U.S. states, which did play a big role in Microsoft, the first tech platform, and its big antitrust episode back in the 90s. So it's a uh, a big record of success and then just lately people realizing oh these are also large titans of industry and they don't really want what's best for us either oh dear so a, a bit of a roller coaster for the firms in the last two years well let's talk about origin stories so before the gloss came off there are myths shrouding all of these organizations um, all of these corporations and that their beginnings and success are really based on the entrepreneurial spirit and innovation and you know sometimes melding with the counterculture in certain ways leading to something that is uniquely brilliant proof that entrepreneurs can make markets work in a capitalist society what's wrong with that picture well, um, there's sort of two pieces to that. Uh, one is, like many sectors of capitalist firms before them, yes, big tech is very eager to put forward its origin story because any giant evil monopoly anywhere in history, just like any giant national empire, has some humble origin somewhere. You know, every, you know, today's powerful empire is yesterday's you know, dominated pariah, and countries are always eager to say, well, we had this period of suffering in the past, so any military action we take is justified. And the same is true for these firms. They're very eager to point to the fact that they used to have small staffs who had to work insane hours to keep the uh, firms turning over, and say, that's our humble story, and we are that spirit still, uh, uh, drives us today. And of course, by the time these firms are large, like any other big conglomerates, they're actively watching for new threats and crushing them. So always when these guys refer to their folksy, small-time origin stories, it's always kind of ugly because, again, from Microsoft to Facebook to Google, as soon as these firms are large, they put people, like full-time you know, staff, whose job is to monitor startups for emerging threats, buy them off, copy their technology, or crush them in some other way. Like, there's lots of ways of doing it. So those humble origin stories are always kind of exaggerated. You know, Jeff Bezos talks about how they founded Amazon in his garage. He actually had hundreds of thousands of dollars of seed money from his family and from his previous Wall Street career. As soon as you get into these guys' details, they're always like this, you know. But to me, the real story here uh, gets to what you referred to also in the question about uh, innovation and the uniqueness of these firms. Well, of course, you know, time was that when people wanted to do the shorthand for defending capitalism and the market economy, they'd say, well, you know, we want freedom. You want you want a freedom of choice of goods and careers. And that's what markets bring you. I think that's a pretty dubious uh, conception in general. But it's 
sort of been somewhat replaced in the last few years. These days, when firms uh, say, you know, defend themselves or when conservatives talk about how great the economy is, they'll say without capitalism, we won't have innovation. That really has sort of replaced uh, freedom and choice in the rhetoric of reaction and defending capitalism for the last couple decades because we've gone through this big period of technological advances with fun uh, uh, apps and gadgets and all these fun things that our phones can do that have led us to be way, way too reliant upon them. But it's interesting because that's be definitely become the shorthand. If you take a look at this history, and in Bit Tyrants, actually, I have an, a, a full chapter specifically about this question. The moment you begin to research the actual history of the development of these technologies, from the phones itself to you know uh, uh, social networking to online search to everything else uh, that these firms have built their business models on, what you quickly discover is that almost all of the core technology that these business models rely upon was developed by the public sector mostly in the 70s, 80s, and 1990s, originally through the Defense Department and then through the National Science Foundation, and then very gradually, once the business model was, once the technology was fully ready to serve as the center of a business model, only in the 90s was the internet uh, privatized. So some listeners may know, for example, just a few little tastes of this history, because it's fascinating. Uh, some of your listeners may be aware that the original name for the internet, back in the early days, like in the 1980s, the original name for the internet was DARPAnet, because it was developed by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, which is the military's research arm, its main research wing. They're always doing you know, drone research and so on. Well, much of the early internet research came through that agency because you know, after all, the military was eager for a decentralized communication system that would be nuclear conflict survivable, a issue which sadly is still relevant before us. And also there's a huge amount of, this was the beginning of the era of big data and the United States had a global counterinsurgency network Network from Vietnam to Western Europe, and they needed a way to manage all that data and make it available to all the agencies and operators around the world in the U.S. Uh, you know, imperial system. So that's significant too. And of course, scientists were eager for a way to share data sets, which is a huge cumbersome part of the job if you are a working scientist. So for all these reasons, first the military's research arm developed this decentralized system based on packet of information that can flow through different routes. Between the source and the destination, which gives you a lot of the decentralized nature of the internet. But it was only a few years later that the National Science Foundation, you know, the big national publicly funded research uh, agency, it was only later they were able to demonstrate the first internet prototype proof of concept where they sent messages from a moving car through a satellite network around the world and then through a wired connection to another location. Like that's the origin of all of this technology. Without that core internet system, there's no internet for Bezos to sell his products. There's no web for Google to index. All of this technology relies on that. And so these guys, to hear them talk, take, they take credit for the whole internet if we let them. The, the credit for the internet belongs to military and nationally funded scientists paid for by our parents' tax funds from the 70s and 80s. Now that's the obvious thing, you know, the internet. But if we look at the other, like the more detailed pieces of these firms and these services that they're so proud to offer, the more you look, again, the more you realize how heavily public funding is key to all this. Like take Google, for example, like perhaps the most impressive of these firms. You know, I'm, I do dozens of Google searches a day. YouTube is a basic global resource now. The majority of the world's phones run on its Android operating system. System software. Well, it all started with the search engine. And what's fun is the original web address for Google, if you wanted to do a Google search, wasn't google.com, it was google.stanford.edu because that was the National Science Foundation funded research lab that the two grad students, Larry Page and Sergey Brin, originally developed that search engine. And incidentally, at the time, they had a grad paper explaining why material incentives, like running a search engine for money, would destroy its ability to deliver uh, results with fidelity, which is interesting. And there's lots more examples of this. The smartphone itself relies on many, many publicly funded innovations and some privately funded ones that Apple bought 
not. And once they had all this technology, Steve Jobs can go out in his sneakers on stage and pretend to be a middle-aged millionaire rock star and talk about this technology that we've developed. Most of it was purchased or relying on public research architecture. And this goes all the way up to technologies like Wi-Fi, which was developed by the University of Hawaii to allow them to network their island-dispersed computing power. It's a fascinating history, and it's very well documented. You know, many historians of science and technology wanted to write about the early internet you know in the 90s so we have tons of records on this this is an ancient history but to hear people talk on tv google and jeff bezos and uh, steve jobs invented the internet and how dare you tax them to uh, reduce their their innovation because they're about to create a new internet oh wait it's bitcoin and it's crashing oh dear rob larson is my guest he's professor of economics at tacoma community college I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain. We're discussing his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. Why is the tech sector especially prone to monopoly? And along with that, could you remind us why monopolies are a problem? When we look at markets uh, economically or just as consumers, you know, you can't help but notice that they really do vary. You know, some markets are fairly richly competitive, often kind of, you know, well, regional markets have that characteristic. If you live in a decent sized community or in an agricultural area and you go to your seasonal farmer's market, you'll see many, you know, stalls, many small businesses and farms and growers, and you have different options for your produce and uh, other farm goods, and that's fine. So that's what we call a competitive market. Lots of options, mostly small operators, no one really big and established enough to throw their weight around. Well, some markets stay like that and basically persist that way for many, many years. Other markets, you get other kinds of outcomes. You know, some markets end up fully monopolized. More commonly, especially these days, than full monopoly, although that that definitely exists, uh, is the most common market structure, we call it these days, oligopoly. It's where you have a small number of big firms, like two or three or four big guys, like the big Wall Street investment banks or the three phone carriers, the, the two credit card networks, and so on. So looking at these industries, all these different industries, some of them are prone to monopoly, some aren't. Usually there's pretty clear economic reasons for this. Sometimes governments grant monopolies outright, like if they want to exploit a colony with the East India Company, or to this day, governments will grant monopolies as patents. If you invent something and you can convince the Commerce Department that it's new and valuable, you can get a patent, a legally granted monopoly uh, on whatever it is you invented. You know, and again, the reason monopolies are considered problematic, yes, uh, is that they're stupendously powerful when you have no or very little opposition in a market. You know, usually we start using the M word when your market share is 85 or 90 percent or higher. Uh, once you have that level of influence, it means you dominate an industry. If you, for some reason, decided to shut down the next day, there goes that marketplace. There's no output. So it speaks to the incredible influence that these firms can have especially if they're making something important, you know. So I could have a patent on the Snuggie, you know, which is a glorified blanket with sleeves for sleepy people. And that's, you know, that's fine. That's a patented product. But of course, the patents we're most familiar with are patented drugs, which people have, you know, a desperate need for. And you can do fairly satanic things to sick people when you have a drug monopoly. Okay. So those are kind of the basic terms there. So you're right. Big tech absolutely is conspicuously prone to monopoly to a degree like greater than classic industry, like, say, Rockefeller. Now, there are reasons why companies want to get big. I mean, business people always want to grow their business to get big and get prominent and get respectable. But also there's economic reasons. Like many industries have big upfront expenses, big fixed costs to start up. And the thing about that is what you realize uh, is it creates a cost pattern called economies of scale, where your per unit costs get smaller as the firm gets bigger. And I'd go into detail about how this works in the book. You know, it's a common economic pattern, but it means the bigger a firm gets, the more profitable it will be at a given price. The more money it has, the more power it will then have across society to do whatever else it wants to do. So the stakes are pretty significant. Well, so why is big tech so unusually prone to this? Again, we've had monopoly across the economy, but it's very striking in big tech how especially 
how much it tends to lean in this direction. I remember uh, a quote in the book, uh, an article from The Economist magazine, which uh, we, your listeners may know is a fairly conservative, like business-oriented UK uh, current affairs magazine. Uh, and, the, you know, they're usually very, very pro-markets, pro-business. It's called The Economist, for God's sake. And uh, their term for uh, Microsoft's operating system monopoly and Google's mobile search monopoly, they referred to them as, and I quote, out-of-the-box monopolies. <laughs> Meaning, as soon as this industry came into existence and we opened the box figuratively, it's already a monopoly. So why? Well, the economic reasons are fairly well understood. Uh, the, I mean, there are a number of issues. The classic one is what we call network effects, or sometimes the network externality. And network effect refers to is a basic characteristic of those markets that are based on networks. Okay. So some markets aren't like this. If uh, I buy a pair of Reeboks and then you buy a pair, they're unrelated transactions. They don't have any connection to each other, really. On the other hand, if I uh, join a new social media network, you know, if I join TikTok, okay, and then the same day later you join that network, okay, well, it got a little more valuable to me when you joined because now there's one more party on the network with whom I might share content or, you know, video software or whatever, okay? So some markets are based on that. They're based on connecting users rather than just supplying a demand with products like shoes or sandwiches or something. And so whenever you have a market based on networks, there's an especially, especially irresistible pull towards monopoly because the whole value, the utility of that network is the number of users it has. So as soon as one network becomes large, it starts just gravitationally attracting more and more users. Like the tendency for incumbent firms to become dominant is almost irresistible. Now there are limits to that. Uh, we can look at why Facebook and not Friendster dominates that space. There are other reasons. It's never just one single cause, you know. But that basic economic pattern is why AT&T had a phone monopoly through almost the entire 20th century. You know, phone services based on networks. If you're the first person with the phone, you know, great, call yourself. Like, it's not useful. As soon as other people get phones, oh, now this thing I can call people or businesses or other parties I might want to reach. So this, as networks grow, they gain value to users. So it means that AT&T will have a phone monopoly. That's how Microsoft had its long-lived Windows monopoly on basically all computing for many years. It's because of network effects. No one thought Windows was some great software. But if I have a video game I want people to play, or a nice software program like a spreadsheet thing or something, I want people to use it, I'm going to design it to work on the most prominent operating system because that's where the users are. That's where the market is. And so if you look at all these uh, tech platforms from Microsoft in its glory days to uh, Google's 90 plus percent market share on mobile search, similar numbers for YouTube, you know, Facebook's uh, former chokehold on social media has weakened a little with TikTok. Uh, it probably would have bought TikTok if it wasn't legally threatened from doing so. Bought Instagram and WhatsApp with no problem before that happened. So there are non-market limits these days on what these firms can do. But fundamentally, that's how these firms built up these monopolistic platforms through that network effects economic pattern. And you write in Bit Tyrants that the founders of these tech companies actually realized this from the get-go, that they would have this advantage through the network effect. How did they make use of that knowledge? It is true. Uh, we have, of course, limited knowledge of this, bearing in mind, of course, that thanks to a series of Supreme Court decisions about 120 years ago, which your listeners know are often important things, uh, corporations, including these big tech platforms, of course, have personal human rights. I'm sure you've discussed that on your program before. So companies like Microsoft and Amazon have the same right to personal privacy from the state that you or I have. You know, rights designed to protect us tiny, vulnerable human individuals, which makes sense because we're small compared to the power of big business and the state. 
like we give these firms these rights and it has the effect of giving them huge powers. It means, for example, that even though these firms not only are huge and important, they're even full monopolies in some cases, we still have no right to look at their documents the way we could file at least potentially a Freedom of Information Act request uh, for the state to give information they don't want to make public. But so that means we have limited information about this to the extent we know about these companies' deliberations. Often it's to the extent that they had a legal case, like an antitrust case, that went all the way to trial. It's rare for these firms, at least until the last few years, to get in antitrust hot water in general. And antitrust cases seldom go all the way to trial. Usually companies either you know, will, will jump out when the Justice Department comes on board, you know, threatens them with a suit, uh, or they'll try to resolve it with them. Because you know, lots of things happen in courts. It's expensive. It's bad for your image if there's court headlines about your company every day. But additionally, when you have a court case, there's discovery and a bunch of your documents may come out, including these days, you know, your digital trail and your email documents, which are definitely a part of these histories. The other, the other way we get information about these firms is when founders like leave and write their tell-all memoirs, which is fine, but often these are people who've left the company. There's often like some bitterness or bad blood there. You can't be quite as completely confident as you can in these records. But we have enough that we can say confidently that some of these tech entrepreneurs, like the smarter ones, at least economically smarter, uh, were aware that there were network effects that were playing a role here and that can build up into full platform economics where you are just the completely dominant hub uh, as YouTube is and as Windows was, you know. Uh, so it, it's interesting. So the ones we know about uh, who are most aware of this are Gates, Zuckerberg, and Bezos. So uh, Gates for years wrote about how they had a operating system monopoly and they set standards for in, across the industry that other firms had to follow. And we now know because, of course, Microsoft went all the way to trial with its 1990s antitrust case. Some of the juiciest stuff in the book uh, is the slimy, backstabbing, scumbag emails that these uh, 1990s Microsoft uh, executives and senior figures were saying to each other, thinking that no one would ever see, you know. And they talk about how uh, their dominance of uh, apps, like the productivity apps, like uh, Word and Excel that people use at the job, including me, to write my books. Uh, they talk about how those, uh, they help contribute to the moat around Windows operating system. They make it harder for firms to challenge them, like recognizing the advantage they get from that network effect. Uh, Zuckerberg used the term by name in his early days, and we have a few sources on that, including uh, Chris Hughes, his former partner, uh, and some other documents. So Zuckerberg, the last of, the, of these uh, big five to build his empire up, was very aware. But my favorite case is actually Jeff Bezos. And sometimes people don't quite see how Amazon would have a network effect, right? After all, Amazon primarily, uh, other than the cloud, which we can also talk about, uh, cloud computing, uh, it's mainly you know a classic retail model. It's like Walmart. You go and you buy products, and they're huge. And you know they have the classic evil giant retailer model of having enough monopsony, enough enough buyer power that they can force all the suppliers of their goods, you know, all the companies whose brand names are on the products, uh, they can force them to lower their prices if they want to get the nice position on on Amazon's search listings or the featured you know Amazon's choice slot and so on. But it's fascinating. There is a network effect associated with Amazon because remember, most of its sales come from its independent sellers, its Amazon marketplace. And of course, many of us, you know, especially when we were stuck at home, you know, don't blame yourself. You know, we didn't want to create this condition, but many of us have purchased on Amazon in the last few years. You will notice, of course, that many times for your search for whatever good you're looking for, they will list like an Amazon option you can buy from them and independent sellers, many of whom keep their stock with Amazon and Amazon does the delivery and therefore captures most of the profit and the crucial consumer data too. But it's that market that creates its own network. Like Amazon hosts that market entirely, much as Google and Apple host the uh, app marketplaces on their phones. Like this is the reality of markets. Like some are competitive and we economists will tell you that's usually the case. Many markets are just owned by companies outright. And so as a result, what we know from uh, uh, the limited amount of uh, material that's available, especially on Amazon, which is a very tight-lipped firm, is that uh, Bezos was willing to sacrifice the main retail sales on the early Amazon to get the independent marketplace going because he realized that would attract more use, more sellers, which would attract more buyers. That's the network effect is that 
centrifugal self-reinforcing process. The big tech CEO who didn't understand this and who actually missed it two times is uh, Steve Jobs. Apple co-founder, which is kind of incredible, you know, because as we all know, uh, Steve Jobs became like the archetype for the modern CEO, you know, dressing cool and walking around on stage and pretending like he's a rock star when he's really an embarrassing middle-aged man having a midlife crisis. It happens. We, many of us middle-aged men go through that process. Uh, but it's incredible. Two times he failed to understand the network effect, and that's why Apple had a small market share compared to Windows and has the minority share of mobile operating system to this day. You know, very sec a distant second to Android, uh, you know, the Google operating system. Because Steve Jobs didn't understand the network effect when they were rolling out the uh, Apple III, he got rid of the ability to bring in uh, uh, other games, like the exterior slots that allowed users to do that. And so he missed a major opportunity and Windows ended up dominating the market because Jobs insisted that all of their software, you know, be native rather than being port be able to be ported in. And actually, there was a time, This, I mean, this is getting into the weeds a little bit here, but there was a, I talk about this in the book, there was a point when, uh, uh, when Microsoft was about to be broken up, which almost happened. It came incredibly close to being broken up in 2000. Uh, when they were right at that point, Bill Gates wrote a letter to Steve Jobs imploring him to, I mean, you can read the letter, he doesn't use these specific economics terms, but he implored him to allow third-party software to be uh, used on, on Apple computers because that would give them a network effect and build up their market share. Gates told them that because during the antitrust trial, he was desperate to have Apple exist because it was the only other big competing operating system firm. And they could say, well, we don't have a full monopoly. 6% of computing users use Apple computers to the extent that Gates was trying to get him to realize like the evil monopolistic tools so he could have a second firm and get uh, out of the hot seat himself. It's kind of an amazing story to see how much these CEOs knew even in the early days about how they could become dominant. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with the author of Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. That's published by Haymarket, and its author is Rob Larson. He teaches economics at Tacoma Community College and is also the author of Capitalism Versus Freedom. Rob, can you tell us about the centrality of harvesting user data for these tech companies? That's something that, again, has become especially uh, prominent these days and something that is, looks like the era of Wild West of data is sort of ending. But absolutely, of course, that's something that's an issue that has finally hit the public. I think a lot of people didn't realize until they started paying attention, like around the Trump uh, administration, that, oh, every time I type something into these companies' search fields, they record it. And I'm sure every every time I tell this to my students uh, in the classroom where I can see people's reactions, you know, I always see like among a few students, a increasingly wide eyed horror. <laughs> As I told them, anything you have ever typed into Google, it stores that data. You know, it remembers. And I always tell my students, you know, whatever weird thing that you're into, whatever weird thing that you're embarrassed by that you search Google for, I don't know what it is. But you know, and Google knows. That's that's who knows. So that's data is pretty important. Uh, people see this, of course, as mainly a way of creepily keeping lots of tabs on users, so they can show us more specifically tailored ads that then, using cookie technology, follow you as you browse across the internet in that creepy, stalkery manner that we've all uh, grown familiar with over the uh, years we've spent on the internet. Uh, but it's impressive, you know, because again, that data is pretty important for that network effect. Like a classic example here would be uh, like Google, for example. When you search things on Google, especially if you're logged in, but even if you're not, uh, Google keeps an eye on what you, you know, keeps a record of what you've searched in the past, and it begins to tailor the suggested search terms and your search results, more importantly, based on what they know about you, based on what you've searched on in the past. So that collecting of data is actually an important part of Google's original search-based network effect. The more searches that are done with a particular search engine, the more data it has, the better it gets at figuring out whether people are satisfied with their search results or not. In my Google chapter, I spend a little time explaining how Google measures whether you liked your search. Did you click on the first thing and not come back? which suggests you were happy with your search, so that's a good one. Or did you come back and try 12 things and you're on the third page of search results before you found something you wanted? 
uh, it's interesting. Like that's a part of how that search engine was refined in the first place. And that's one reason why if you get on a rival search engine like uh, Microsoft's lousy Bing or like Yahoo, say a more established one, sometimes you'll get better search results, often not. But of course, there are other confounding factors. Uh, Alphabet, Google's corporate parent, like all these other corporations, you know, they strike a pose as these big innovators and we're brave heroes. But very soon you've had an IPO and you're just beholden to Wall Street analysts on maximizing your shareholder price your stock price. And as a result, uh, if you do Google searches now, I'm amazed how like the first majority of the page will be made up of ads of various types and various display formats, which again, the creators of the company said would ruin the engine over time. And you know, you could say it's coming to pass. It's they're right about that. Unfortunately, they value becoming billionaires more than sticking with their uh, tech principles, sadly, a common story. But that collection of data is a big deal. But to the point, too, that it's become a public issue. People were really mad to find out about, uh, you know, like Cambridge Analytica, the company that famously scraped the information for tens of millions of Facebook users by promoting those really dumb uh, personality tests that you would see on Facebook, which, of course, was then used to, like, help the Trump campaign target users and win the narrow victory that put it in and created all the problems that we're dealing with to this day. So it's become a prominent enough issue that countries are trying to uh, regulate the use of the process. The leader in regulating big tech in general by far is the European Union, uh, partially because they're more social democratic in general, at least somewhat, even in this neoliberal hellhole period we're in. Uh, but also, all the dominant tech firms are American, which makes it, I think, a little bit easier for their regulators to say, well, these tech companies are powerful and they're all lousy Americans, so we need to keep an eye on these firms. So, for example, in the EU, they have the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, if I'm remembering that properly. And it puts very real limits on what firms can do with your data. And above all, it requires asking permission before firms stick cookies onto your phone or computer, which is now, which is why uh, these days, whenever you log into a site, one of the first things you'll see is a little menu saying, we're using cookies to track you. I hope that's okay. And of course, like most consumers, when we get warnings that were put there to help us, we go like, I'm busy, get out of my way. And we just close it <laughs> uh, as we ignore safety warnings on other products, you know. But it's limiting what firms can do with this data. It's limiting where they can keep it. Like it often requires firms to keep the data physically on servers within, uh, you know, that particular jurisdiction, which is significant. But the main thing is the market itself is leaning away. Like consumers are eager for less sharing out of their data. And like in other areas, like the firms are willing to cater to that, at least on their own terms. So the, I'm sure many of your listeners who own iPhones and so on, you're probably aware that when you open up apps ever since one of last year's operating system software updates, you'll now get a notice that uh, this firm likes to use uh, your data to track you and serve you ads. Do you want to allow this or do you want to block it? It's only been a few months since that change was rolled out, I think like eight months or so, but already very few people are saying, yes, track me, sounds great. <laughs> Turns out people don't actually want that crap if they're given the option. And that's one reason why Facebook's had a terrible several months in its uh, stock price is down by a third since its heights last year, uh, primarily because its ad rates have fallen because far fewer uh, users who are running Apple uh, devices, that is, are uh, allowing themselves to be tracked and collect that incredibly detailed and granular information about uh, remember, it's never just what you're doing on the app, bear in mind. Half the purpose of these things is to track you across apps. And even companies that uh, affect a uh, high-minded attitude about this, like Google, which now encourage you to do security checks and make sure you're happy with your really confusing settings, which almost no one puts time into because they're not really set up to be easy. It's easy enough to make things confusing. A Google engineer once wrote, if we control the interface, we control the outcome. Uh, in a different context, but I always think of that quote because it's so crazy, you know. Uh, but companies like Google, they were among the pioneers of tracking you wherever you went, especially after this big purchase that they made uh, once they had become a, you know, a very dominant presence in online search and, of course, online video through YouTube, which they uh, bought many years ago uh, for a bargain price, it turns out. Uh, but it's interesting. Uh, to see the use of that. But when they bought uh, DoubleClick, which was a big online ad server, D DoubleClick had one of the most invasive cookies in, in online 
tracking and would track you across uh, websites and across different apps. It was very invasive as privacy advocates wrote at that time. And so Google was able to combine that double click cookie and all its information about our web browsing with what it knew about us from our search history from those of us who use Gmail, and of course we get served ads no longer, but you know, I mean, you know, we still do, but based on just what it knows about us rather than scanning our email. And of course it knows uh, you know, what you're searching and what you watch on YouTube. Between all that information, like Google can make a super profile of you that is now detailed enough that Google now can back away from this stuff. And they'll say, for example, well, if you have a Gmail account, you get ads in it, of course, but they're not based on scanning your email like it used to be. And we're supposed to go, oh, great, they're not scanning my email. That's nice. Oh, that's nice. But of course, they're able to afford to not scan our email and still have a hugely performing ad uh, business uh, market, you know, business model without it because they know enough about us now that they can like step away from the most egregious forms of this and they can stop scanning your email. Um, and they're talking about, especially with the Chrome browser, like limiting the kind of cookies that can work. That's because no firm, including Facebook, can match Google's existing knowledge of all of us to the extent that they can step away from some of these more embarrassing forms because they don't need them. Maybe they've outlived their usefulness. They're making them look bad and they can strike a very pro-privacy pose at the same time that they know not just everything about us, but I would just throw this in finally, both Google and Facebook have refused to say whether they maintain profiles of people who don't use their services, but who they know exist from other sources. Uh, pretty fascinating stuff. <laughs> Indeed. Rob Larson is my guest. His book is Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. There's so much to discuss here, and in fact, we're, we're going to have to leap over some of it because of time. I want to make sure, though, to get to the question of what to do. Uh, there are so many different struggles that are taking place within tech companies or around tech. There are so many facets to the issues with tech companies, including worker struggles within them, both blue collar and white collar questions around privacy and data, as you've been enumerating, questions about power, and then, of course, their ability to influence the kind of ideas that are shared within the society. And I wanted to ask you then, given all of this, uh, what can be done and, and how can it be done? For sure. Um, well, there's a number of things, of course, uh, that we can do. Uh, it is, as you said, uh, the case that there's a lot to say about the workforce for these firms. Um, I'm sure I'm not the only one uh, of us who is extremely delighted to see the early, uh, you know, limited but early successes of the Amazon labor union and the first uh, so far successful attempts to organize the beginnings of these firms. People should remember, of course, that any union organizing campaign has two waves. First, you get recognition, then you have to actually get a contract, which is also extremely difficult. Uh, and some the, the labor union is winning some Amazon votes and not winning some others. You know that's that's the labor movement for you. Uh, it's interesting though uh, to see the history of this because, like you said, there are blue and white collar components to that workforce. So in addition to like some blue collar workers, for example, and yeah, and Amazon's giant fulfillment centers who are trying to organize. It's fascinating to watch like the white collar segment of the tech workforce uh, limiting what the firms can get away with. Very very often. When these companies say we've made a principal decision, even though we would make money from this particular thing, we're not going to do it almost every time when you look into it. It's because the workforce in these firms was saying, if you move forward for th with this, none of us are going to work for you. And then they go, OK, well, we have a principle about this now that we can't uh, move forward. So Google's workforce a couple of times has refused to work on AI systems for weaponized drones. And there have been walkouts over the subject, and Google has tried so hard again and again to be able to get those lucrative Defense Department and CIA contracts for its cloud technology, which Amazon is soaking up, despite Jeff Bezos's nominally libertarian leanings. Uh, but it's Google's workforce that forces those uh, limits on them, you know? And so when conservatives complain about big tech being so liberal, 
I mean, not really. Like, the companies are just other companies. They're not really political. They'll pitch left, they'll pitch right, depending on who they're selling to or what government they're trying to get to leave them alone, you know. Uh, but whenever they take these, like, actual moves that are, like, legitimately progressive, like forswearing working on drones or uh, trying to increase how inclusive their workplaces are in various ways, it's never management. It's always the workforce complaining until management cracked. So I do want to just refer to that. Now, what can we all do uh, beyond, of course, supporting these attempts by these workers to organize. It's always worth supporting these early unions, of course. Well, you know, obviously big tech isn't the only industry that has a problem. I mean, wall-to-wall -wall American 21st century capitalism is a 24-hour wide-awake nightmare. From our insane health system to our, energy syst to our energy system that's melting the world to big tech ruining our online experiences and making everyone you know, uh, have even dumber ideas about these problems than the ones they started with. So it's a broader system issue, and that means we need to support what forces we have uh, to bring in limits on these firms, maybe break them up, maybe regulate them. Uh, and there, you know, we've got the, you know, progressive uh, movement in the United States, such as it is. You know, we have some early good uh, left uh, legislators, small in number. We have, you know, sometimes presidential campaigns that, you know, are long shots because it's a whole system we have to deal with. There's wall-to-wall -wall media hostility, you know. Uh, but those issues, you know, those campaigns have put these issues in people's minds to a significant extent, you know. So I think the obvious issue of, uh, the, you know, the obvious point of supporting legitimate progressive candidates as much as we can is important. Very difficult, though, in the United States, of course, because unlike other countries, not only do we not have a real labor-based political party, but also the parties control the budget, uh, the uh, ballot lines in the state. So it's very difficult to get a bona fide independent political party on there, especially without splitting votes and actually helping out the reactionaries who are increasingly terrifying in this country uh, on every issue. So that's tough. To me, the real issue, the, the, the real hope uh, that I talk about this at the end of the book is uh, to get a real socialization of these platforms. I mean, I'm all for nationalizing them in terms of like the legal process, right? But you know, nationalizing firms is a step that can be reversed and so on. You change them fundamentally by having real socialism, like worker control and worker decision-making about these firms. And so I talk a little in the book about online socialism and what that would mean. And remember, like, the classic idea of socialism was worker control. You go into work and you and your colleagues make the decisions that management now keeps to itself. And you work with other industries and figure out what you're going to do. You should bear in mind that for a lot of these platforms, I mean, they vary, but for most of these platforms, the value comes from us. The users, obviously, there's a huge amount of work being done to make these platforms work. They're so complicated, it's difficult to understand software. But the value of them comes from us users. We're the ones who make the websites that Google indexes. We're the ones who make the videos that YouTube shows. Our Facebook and Twitter posts are where Zuckerberg and I guess now Elon Musk are going to get their value from. So any vision for online socialism should have not just, yes, a lot of worker control by the engineers and for Amazon, the blue collar workers. Uh, who operate the firms, but also us users should have a big role there. And I always put it this way, every time you get an email from these guys that says, we've changed our terms of service, and it's a link to a 6,000 word incomprehensible legal document that almost literally no one ever reads. It's, we know we won't understand it. It would mean hours of work. You go, uh, forget it. We should be writing the terms of service. Like, that would be an online socialism there. Now, getting us there is a lot of work, but because we have these broader economic issues, I always say it should be part of the bigger U.S. progressive movement. You know, we need a stronger labor movement. We need people thinking about how they can socialize platforms that they're using and uh, supporting those what what visible progressive candidates we have like that has to be a part of this process too you always need a political movement and an on the streets labor movement that scares elites uh, and giving you some concessions like that's how these things get uh, moved at least slightly well and then thinking about how we get from here to there uh and thinking about the goal of online socialism what sort of strategies do you think could be effective I mean, you're, you're talking broadly about linking, embedding struggles around the tech companies into wider struggles on the left. But you write in the book, Bit Tyrants, about the idea of a user strike. I wonder if you can end by describing for us that strategy. 
Sure. So crucially, of course, as we're saying here with these firms, it's our use that makes them work. It's our content that makes them attractive and gives them that network effect, which at least opens up the question of the possibility of a user strike or a content strike, uh, which I think is something we should take seriously. This has been floated by you know, a number of other tech critics, of course. Uh, the difficulty here, of course, is just the stupendous depth of these platforms. So the idea, of course, is uh, since these firms run on our posts and videos uh, and our you know, independent sales on Amazon and so on, if we cut these things back, it's at least raises the possibility of doing enough of a dent to their growth and their share price that management will respond by making concessions or maybe will be forced to make concessions. That kind of thing can also show there's antagonism to the firms, which can in some circumstances, give politicians a little more spine to uh, push for these changes against the mountain of lobbying cash that these companies, unsurprisingly, are able to bring. But it is a difficult... Uh, the only problem with that, of course, is just the stupendous depth of that market. Again, uh, the example I like to use is YouTube. You, know, you couldn't have a clearer case of network effects than that. If you have a video to share and you need the world to see it... I mean, I like Vimeo as much as the next guy, but it's kind of niche. You know, people are on YouTube. That's where you put at least highlights of your video or whatever. Well, YouTube's interesting. You know, it's a classic platform, Google's property, as we've said. I mean, technically, Alphabet's property. Uh, but that, as I recall, that platform gets a couple dozen years of video uploaded per day. <laughs> because of the millions upon millions of people around the world who upload their boring you know, movie reviews and so on every day to it. So the difficulty of the strike the content strike-based approach is just the stupendous total numbers. Even if you have like a very successful, uh, you know, a very prominent and well-coordinated move to restrict use of these platforms because there's so many users, it's difficult to make a dent in that total. Like it's difficult to make more uh, you know, th than, a, than a small effect there. And often it can be more visible than its real effect, but that real effect is what makes companies fundamentally care. It's like these companies have a lot to say about their culture and their values, and, you know, they like the feel-good factor of inclusiveness and what people disparagingly call woke terms and all that. These firms only like that because that you know, is popular among the marketplace. Like, people have moved in that direction. These firms, of course, they're corporations. They have no actual values, you know. Uh, so the real value is that uh, success of their business model and meeting their Wall Street quarterly share price uh, target, you know. So this, the user strike, I think, is important. And when people credibly try to get those going, I think they're definitely worth supporting. But in my view, yeah, it takes that more inherently collective action that you get with state action, I have to say, as much as I feel the labor movement is completely indispensable to our struggles against the power of big tech and capitalism more broadly. It is, after all, the power of the state that has the ability to break these firms up, which happened to Microsoft until Bush stole the election in 2000. And his Justice Department under John Ashcroft decided they would drop that attempt to break up Microsoft. But it's the state that has that power. And if Facebook later gets broken up, or as we call it, yes, a forced divestiture, where they force it to sell off WhatsApp or Instagram, or if Google is forced to part with Android or YouTube. I think these kind these things are kind of long shots in general. I think if Microsoft got away with it, these guys probably will too. Government's only more dysfunctional now than it was in the 90s. But that's where like the natural collective power is in a republic, you know. So to me, like that labor movement is important for people's dignity, for putting restraints on these firms, or for helping us to see this is something we can struggle against. So it's completely indispensable. But it's that political action. I mean, after all, that's how these firms almost got broken up. That's how uh, the European Union has put like some real limitations on these firms. Rob Larson, thank you so much. My absolute pleasure so much. Thank you, Sasha. Rob Larson is professor of economics at Tacoma Community College. We've been discussing his book, Bit Tyrants, The Political Economy of Silicon Valley, which is published by Haymarket. You can find a link to it on our website, againstthegrain.org. He's the house economist at Current Affairs, also the author of Capitalism and Freedom. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Mm -hmm.